Hi, everybody. You are watching School Psych Podcast. Welcome for, uh, thank you for joining us tonight. Um, first off, before we get started with our topic, we have kind of an exciting announcement that we wanted to just mention that we are now officially on iTunes. So if you guys are, you know, have a long commute and want to give a listen to us, you can search us on the iTunes store. And that's all thank you to our now our favorite intern, he's awesome, um, Joey Gilliam. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Joey. But we love you, <laughs> and you're really cool. And um, thank you so much for that. So um, tonight we are going to be talking about adolescents, specifically adolescent girls. And we have an awesome guest who um, has a lot of experience and has written a book on the topic. So we're going to be talking with her. But first off, um, my name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist, and I'm working in the state of Maryland right now. My experience um, with adolescents, I had a couple years in North Carolina with high schools and I did some a little bit of counseling there and um, in Texas I did a year working with high school students as well but my counseling experience there was pretty much all adolescent boys <laughs> with conduct problems so I'm looking to be uh, learning a lot tonight um, from our guest so Rebecca Hi, I'm Rebecca. I am a school psychologist in the state of Connecticut. I work in a pre-k through 12th grade private school. So I do get to work with adolescents uh, um, in my school. And I also have four teenagers of my own. So that's my uh, experience with adolescents. I do want to also tell you guys before we introduce our guests how to participate because we'd love to hear from you about your experience working with adolescents. Um, and you can comment on the Facebook pages, either School Psych to your school psychologist. You can just post to page or, or put a comment under a post or send me a message. Also on the School Psych podcast page, of course, and on Twitter using the hashtag PsychedPodcast. And here's Anna. Hi, I'm Anna, School Psych working in New York. I work with um, middle and high school students with disabilities, providing primarily counseling services, but also doing some assessments on the side, sort of. Um, so I'm very excited to introduce our guest, um, Lisa Damore. Um, welcome, Lisa. I'm going to just read a little bit about her background, so those of you out there know about her if you haven't already heard of her. Um, Lisa directs Laurel School Center for Research on Girls, writes a column for the New York Times Well Family blog, maintains private psychotherapy practice in Ohio, consults and speaks internationally, and is a faculty associate at the Schubert Center for Child Studies and a clinical instructor at Case Western Uni Reserve University. Um, she also authored numerous papers, um, textbooks, and um, including Abnormal Psychology, which many of us have taken. And um, she, her latest book is called Untangled, um, Guiding Teenage Girls Through the Seven Transitions to Adulthood. So that's mainly what we're going to focus on today. And we wanted to sort of bring the school connections, and even though, you know, we with our parents of girls and, and stuff. Um, we want to focus on what school practitioners can do working with adolescents um, and what we can do sort of on our end of the school day. So we did a little poll for our school psych friends out there asking them what do they do um, when they're working with adolescents, what's their focus and their workload. And the majority of people, we had 31 votes, said that they conduct evaluations and assessments for adolescent students. So they work with kids for a short period of time doing those evaluations but don't necessarily work with them continuously. Um, we also had 11 votes for people who do um, offer counseling for adolescents. So we have a chunk of people out there who are giving counseling services. Seven people work with parents um, on psychoeducational perspectives of teens. Um, some people work with teens on their progress monitoring goals and some people give some workshops as well. So um, 
Lisa, would you mind just giving us a little um, a little background on how you came to your um, seven developmental transitions of adolescence? Sure, sure. Thank you for having me. It's great to be with you guys. Um, so this came through, in some ways, all of the different ways in which I've worked with teenagers over the years in my private practice and then also teaching about them in classrooms and um, working with them as a consultant to a school. And I will say that it's probably the time in the school that I would say did the most in helping me understand normal development and the expectable transitions that you know kids who are actually thriving go through. You know, because in a practice, you see kids who are struggling, and and so much of this book is about normal development. And and I really credit the time I have spent in a school setting to helping me get clarity on that. Um, I will say the seven transitions probably came most from my work with graduate students. I, I am a clinical instructor at Case Western Reserve University. So I'm training young graduate students to become psychotherapists. And I think, as you guys know, the, the least seasoned clinicians get the most chaotic cases, you know, that they're all working in these $5 clinics. And so um, they were seeing these very, they are seeing, you know, these very, very um, complex cases where there's not a lot of resources, where family life is, um, you know, pretty chaotic. And, and there's a lot that's not going as well as, as we would want. And they were sort of overwhelmed by these cases because they, you know, are just starting out as clinicians. And then I would feel sort of overwhelmed on their behalf, you know, as somebody trying to help them manage these complicated cases. And so over time, we came to this idea, you know, I came to this idea in terms of being a teacher for them, that there are seven things teenagers have to do to be, you know, successful in the, in the phase of adolescence. And, and that's what I'm articulating in this book. And what that allowed us to do was actually to check off some boxes, even in the most chaotic cases, so we could say, okay, this is a girl who has parted with childhood. She's not acting like a baby. She's, you know, interested in growing up. She's sophisticated in some ways. She has also found a new tribe, so that's chapter one and chapter two. So she's got friends, you know, they're not always getting along, but she's found people outside of her family. She's in therapy because she cannot harness emotions at all, you know, and we're going to help her with that. In terms of contending with adult authority, so that's chapter four, you know, she gets along fine with adults, sometimes she gets into it, but mostly she manages, and it just gave us a way to target the work, and I think brought my anxiety down, brought my graduate student's anxiety down, and then we could really say, you know, this is the step of adolescence that she's not moving forward on, let's put our energies here, or these three steps she's struggling with, but these four she's actually got in pretty good shape. Yeah. That makes perfect sense to me, and I do. I I have to say that reading your book as a, uh, both a school psychologist and a parent, it your tone, your voice comes through so so nicely, and it is so comforting, you know. And I love especially some of the language that you uh, suggest or provide for adults because the way we communicate with kids sometimes makes. Um, all the difference in how they w want to or will relate back to us. And so I love the suggestions under each um, topic or on each developmental strand. And it kind of gives us a different way to um, to express our concern or question or, or even our support. And I, I really like that about your book. I highly recommend it um, for us to recommend to parents and also just for anybody out there that works with teenagers. It's, it was really enjoyable to read. Thank you. 
So our first chapter, as you said, your first chapter is Parting with Childhood. Um, while reading this, it made me really think about, I, because I work in a private school and we have school uniforms, it made me think about um, school dress codes. Um, and and how there's and even before in my internship year I was in a public school but there were very strict dress codes specifically for girls often about leggings and spaghetti straps and things like that and I remember the feeling the um, the conflict the, sort of the internal conflict of how do I tell a girl that she needs to go change because she's She's what? She's distracting to the boys, or she's, um, you know, doing something wrong in some way. And I didn't necessarily uh, feel that she was doing something wrong, but at the same time, we have this challenge. Mm -hmm. how, how do you think? Do you think that 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 topic, the the way um, teens and and tween girls want to dress and present themselves, is that related to parting with childhood also in your mind? Absolutely. You know, I mean, one of the key ways, and this is a particularly female way of parting with childhood, because what I would say is the seven transitions I'm talking about, boys go through them too. It just looks different in terms of how they often go about these. But with girls, a lot of parting with childhood is experimenting with older dress, you know, looking kind of sexy, dressing up, you know, wearing stuff that's more revealing. And, and one complication that arises is that I think adults often invest that with a lot more meaning than it has for the girl. And, and, you know, I think that those conversations become tricky quickly because the adult is thinking and seeing one thing and the girl feels that she's projecting something quite different from what the adult is reacting to. So it, those are already our murky conversations from the get-go. But we do know, and, you know, and one of the studies I cite in the book is that when girls are feeling self-conscious about their bodies, it interferes with their focus and their intellectual capacity. So I, I will tell you, this is one where I feel, and I use this metaphor in the book, like an arsonist and a fireman in, you know, in alternating, you know, <laughs> moments. Because on the one hand, I feel like I want to say to the girls, guys, you know, when, I, when we can see your shape so clearly in your leggings, everybody's paying attention to your body. You've got to be thinking about the fact that everybody's paying attention to your body. And that's not what you should be worrying about at school, right? So that's the arsonist in me. And then there's the fireman where I'm thinking, why should this be a big deal that anybody cares what your body looks like and you should wear whatever you want and we tell you you're beautiful and we want to empower you and we don't want you to feel self-conscious about your body, so wear the leggings, you know. <laughs> so I think um, it's a really, really complicated situation and I think anybody who tries to ride in with a simple solution to this doesn't really understand how murky it becomes when you're talking with real life teenagers. Yeah. I, I agree. I mean, um, so one of my schools, they were very strict with the dress code, and I feel like there was kind of a rebellion. I mean, every every day I would see just girls lined up at the assistant principal's office um, because they were caught in the hallways and, whoop, and sent home, or, you know, parents have to bring a change of clothes, and it's just it became... Eventually, I think a lot of them became a little bit defiant with it because it was, you know, something that was so strictly um, enforced in the school. Well, and, you know, the girls are smart, and they, they, they can see the ways in which there's a hypocrisy in it. You know, that on the one hand, we're saying, love yourself, every shape is beautiful, you shouldn't worry about this. You know, and, you know, on the other hand, we're saying, but really, please cover up a little bit more. You know, and it's... We don't have a good handle on this as adults. 
Um, I think, you know, trying to have fruitful conversations with, with teenagers about it is probably a good way to go. I will also say this is a great argument for uniforms, right? I mean, this, this is a really, you know, in schools that have uniforms, there's some real upside to that because it takes away the question of the cost of clothing, you know, the fashion of clothing, and it also takes away the question of feeling self-conscious in one's clothes. And the school where I consult, there's a uniform, and the girls look great, and, and they also seem... So even in an all-girls setting, so much less self-conscious about their bodies on the day they're wearing the uniforms than on the day they're in what we call cities. Mm. Yeah. So uniforms for everybody, I think, is the answer. Um, so in one of your chapters, you talk about joining a tribe. Um, and in the school setting, sometimes we see um, where maybe our younger kids or kids with um, learning differences or social weaknesses or impulsivity um, might get a little bit left behind. Um, with with that stage there, what can a school psychologist do uh, to help those kids in school? What types of like social skills would we be teaching in such a situation? So you know, this is you know, we could talk about joining a new tribe for three hours easily, and I'm sure a lot of the tears that end up in your offices have to do with you know a moment where the tribe situation was not going well for a seventh grader. You know, and sixth grader, it's especially hot in those in those grades. Um, you know, one of the things, I'm sure you guys know this um, finding, and it's, you know, I usually reject any one-sentence explanation of something in psychology because it doesn't hold up, but one of the few that stayed with me over the years is, is a quote from Russell Barkley about kids with ADHD, where he says they're 30% behind academically and socially, and that, to me, has consistently felt right. And, and you know this, and I know this, like they're behind socially because they're missing so many cues. Mm -hmm. And then you get to seventh grade, and you get to seventh grade girls, and the cues are subtle, and they are coming fast. And, um, you know, some poor kid, boy or girl with ADHD, they're going to miss a lot of the subtext of what's happening around them. And so that's not going to help them out. And then they have the further problem that as 6th and 7th and 8th graders are all about parting with childhood, the last thing they want to do is attach themselves to a kid who seems young. Mm -hmm. you know, they're also striving to seem older. So it, you know, it's just such a double whammy for those kids. Um, one thing I found is it's helpful for your parents to understand this, right? That you know, it's, it's not usually the child's fault, but as a function of the learning difference, they make some social problems. I think it's helpful for parents to have a neutral, supportive, bit of information about that, even if it's hard to hear. Mm -hmm. The other thing I think is, often those kids need very concrete feedback. Yeah. You know, I think saying, here's what I want you to do. For the rest of the day, don't touch anybody. <laughs> That's a challenge, right? Yeah. And I mean, and I think, you know, trying to get into some lengthy feedback, what do you think he thought when you said, you know, I, I don't know that those are always as useful as saying, just don't touch anybody for the rest of the day and um, see if you can blurt out only twice a period. That's all we're asking. And, and one of the nicest things I, uh, someone ever told me as a psychologist, it's this really brilliant psychologist named Nancy McWilliams, you know, sometimes you look at someone and they just seem like they're in so much trouble and they can't get it right at all at any point in the day, and you think, oh my gosh, kiddo, how are we ever going to get you back on track? And she said, you know, think about a ship leaving port, you know, and if it adjusts its trajectory by two degrees, you know, if it goes from, like, here to here, you know, in 100 miles it hits a different continent, 
So sometimes I think with those kids who are kind of so impulsive or a little blurty outy or bugging their classmates because they seem young, if you say, just don't touch anybody today, you know, maybe that means that someone says, why don't you come sit with us at lunch, right? And then, then they're suddenly sitting with somebody at lunch. And, may, you know, like those, those hope for those openings, if they can just change up the pattern a little bit, I think can help. Yeah, that's great. I, I was listening to a, a Child Mind webinar on ADHD, and I, I can't remember the name of the psychologist, but he had a great metaphor where he said when he talks to kids that he's evaluated and um, if they have ADHD, he says to them, I have great news. You have a brain like a Ferrari, uh, but I have some bad news. You have bicycle brakes. And, uh, you know, I think... Beautiful. But but I'm you're lucky because I'm a brake specialist and I'm gonna help you uh, I'm gonna help you, you know, make stops and, and strengthen your brakes. So I like what you're saying in terms of um, looking for very specific um, skills, very very discreet and basic simple skills to work on one by one. That's uh, to me sounds like being a brake specialist and sounds like something that we can all do. <laughs> I love that metaphor. That's great. <laughs> great. I like that too. Yeah. I, I, I also think um, I, what I've noticed is that the kids that are emotionally impulsive and m sort of more quick to get upset or they look younger and then they are, are more likely to either be left out or sort of accused of bullying because they're kind of, they're, they're loud, they're, you know, reactive sometimes and so I guess a, a simple skill to, to teach um, a child like that, a student like that is to maybe just take a break, you know, get a drink of water and then to make a decision or, or something like that. Do you have any others maybe for emotional impulsivity that you can think of? Well I think, you know, it's interesting um, and I say this as a parent of two children and also somebody who used to work on an inpatient unit of adolescents. It's helpful to talk about provoking and who's provoking whom? Because I think sometimes, and I think this is a little bit what you're getting at, kids who are more sophisticated will provoke the reactive child out of boredom or who knows what. Yeah. But they know they can get that kid to hit the ceiling, and so they'll do it, and then and then suddenly that kid's in trouble and they're standing around innocent. And and I think in when you first say the idea of like, well, who's provoking whom? It can seem like it's a little abstract, but in reality. It's so obvious as soon as you start looking for it. Mm -hmm. And so I think that one of the things you could say, I love the idea of saying, can you go get a drink? But I would actually insert a step before that, which is to say, look, I wonder if sometimes kids are provoking you and you're reacting. Mm -hmm. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to start to notice the provoking. And if you feel like someone's provoking you, go get a drink. Like Give yourself a minute to make a decision about what you want to do with that. But it is, I was so inspired when I started working on this inpatient unit for 12-year-old boys. They had all these anti-provoking rules, and I thought, you've got to be kidding me. Like, there's no way to catch this. It is so easy to identify. As soon as you start looking for it, it's, like, right in front of you, and everybody benefits from calling it what it is as opposed to waiting for a kid to hit the ceiling. Yeah, that's great. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, so, so frenemies. Relational aggression, huge, huge in school. Even um, I'm at an elementary, at elementary schools right now, and even my fifth graders, you know, come down to my office, and she said this, and she's doing this, and names, and and lots of lots of drama. So why why is that so painful, and what's the difference between you know that popularity and and power? And can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Sure, sure. So um, let's let me just do the popularity powerful one quickly because that's easy, and then we'll come back to this. You know, fifth graders at odds with each other and helping them, and sixth graders. Um, one of the things that has long been in the research, but I haven't heard it translated this way, is that we actually see two different kinds of popularity when we ask kids about who's liked and disliked in their classroom. And a lot of kids who get nominated as being popular, their kids will say, actually, we don't actually like them, but we call them popular. And what happens when you drill down is usually kids are somewhat uncomfortable around those kids. They know the kids who are um, popular but disliked are kids that are usually willing to be mean, and everybody knows it. So everybody wants to be their friend because nobody wants to be on their you know, target list. And it's very helpful, I find, with parents and with students by fifth or sixth grade to say, you guys, there's two kinds of popular here. Popular and there's powerful. Popular means people really like you and want to hang out with you. Powerful means you make the person nervous because you're willing to be mean. You know, and, and you all need to know that that is how, you know, those are the two options. If someone is powerful and not popular, be mindful of how they're using their power. And if somebody is popular and genuinely popular and you want to hang out with them, great. You know, if you're that kid, great. But it's amazing how it just um, deflates the concept of popularity a little bit in a really useful way to articulate those two forms. And as soon as you articulate it, everybody knows which category kids fall into. Right? I mean, it's, a pretty, it's pretty obvious right away. So that's helpful. And you don't have to name names. Um, as for the frenemies thing, I think especially with girls, what is so hard, especially in fifth and sixth grade, they cannot separate out thinking, feeling, and doing. So if they don't like a kid, they feel like they have to act on it. Right? They feel like they have to like be icky or talk about her online or you know turn their shoulder and roll their eyes. And, and that's actually the problem, is their compulsion to act, and then their compulsion to react. And, and one of the things that I have found is very helpful with kids in general, and certainly with groups of girls, is for the grown-up just to say, we get it. You're not going to like everybody in your class. You may not actually like most of the kids in your class. That's fine. Like, that is totally fine. We randomly selected you and put you together. There is no reason that this should be wonderful all the time. And then to say, we don't mind if you dislike each other. We don't mind if you think icky thoughts. We don't mind if you have dark feelings towards each other. Rock on. Like, you can't stop those. We can't stop those. You don't have to. You have to be polite. That's all we ask. You cannot act on those dark feelings. You, so the person you like least in the class, we still ask that you be polite to that person. That's all we ask. And I don't use the term respect. I think respect is a very high bar, right? And if we all know adults we do not respect, we're still polite to them, right? And so I think it's concrete, and also polite, it's so, I mean, fifth graders know the difference between polite and rude. You know, it, it, it's concrete enough that you can hold a fifth grader to that level. Um, you know, hey, you guys, someone slipped into the chair at the, the last seat at the lunch table right before that girl sat down. Was that polite? You know, like, you're not getting into whether or not, like, I don't care that you don't like her. Was What just happened, was that polite or not polite? And, and that, for me, feels actionable you know, with, with middle school kids. That's a great point. I, I like that too because it's really hard to um, explain respect to a, to a student or, or your child. You know, when you say that was so disrespectful, sometimes they don't understand why and you don't really have the words to, it's, it's a feeling more than an observable behavior often, but um, politeness versus rudeness versus rudeness is observable often. 
and fair to ask, you know, and, and that's a fair request. You know, and I think, especially when we get into respect, it's so abstract that kids might say, well, you know, we were respectful, we just didn't talk to her, and that was better than what we wanted to do. And it's like, well, even not talking to her, like, you're still being rude, you're yeah. still not putting it, you know. Okay, up, up to transition four, contending with adult authorities. So the teenage brain is built for risky behavior. How do we protect them in schools but still let them feel independent? How do we intervene with them as authorities in school? Yeah, okay, so, you know, it is the nature of adolescence that you are going to try to figure out what are the lines and which ones can I cross, right? And and what happens if I cross them? And, and are they for real? Um, you know, I think one of the toughest things, certainly about parenting teenagers, is the reality that you actually cannot guarantee a teenager's safety. And and I think it's, it's really tough to grapple with that reality. But, you know, if they're going to leave your house, which they are, you know, we cannot be sure that they're safe all the time and they're always making good choices. Um, I think that one of the smarter things we can do is not turn it into a cat and mouse game between the adults and the teenager, right, where we say, um, don't let me catch you X, Y, and Z, you know, um, because then I think for teenagers all they hear is don't get caught X, Y, and Z, right, which they cannot get caught quite easily. Mm -hmm. So I think um, always, always, and this gets to some other other things about how they handle themselves in school and elsewhere, it's better to say, look, you want to be safe, I want you to be safe, so the reason we're asking you not to, you know, whatever it is, you know, sit on that rail that leans out over the, you know, stadium or, you know, do crazy stuff on the weekend is because it's unsafe. And, and you know, the last thing you want is to get hurt and the last thing we want is for you to get hurt. So always put it, you know, every rule, I mean, there should be a reason for the rule. You know, it shouldn't be something arbitrary. And I think the more we can point to, look, we have the rule that you can't run in the hall because people come out of the classrooms fast, and if you flatten somebody, you're both going to get hurt. So that's why we're asking you to slow down. Not, I caught you running in the hall. You know, I mean, I think it's easy to fall back on just, I'm the grown-up, I said so. Always, always, if we can make it, let me remind you why we have the rule. And the rule should really, it basically comes down to safety. You know, for most of the adolescent rules, they are safety rules. And, and we can actually propose those as a teammate to the teenager, either not as an authority. Yeah. R related to that, and also um, it, under the strand harnessing emotion, I think of how students in my school will, and students, the one thing I do always notice as a school psychologist versus parent is that um, kids at work are often much more polite to me and also much more positive and um, you know they're they're just sweet kids but then at home my kids are real with me I'm their mom so sometimes that harnessing emotion piece at home is very different because I will get the, the you know how was your day or whatever the question is and I'll get a you know a catalog of how awful it was and how I'll never understand and I don't really care anyway <laughs> that kind of thing but at, at work there's a little bit of that I mean I feel as though students adolescents do um, they they need that space to be able to vent if they want to and I wonder what you'd say what I hear often at work is the very negative swing on um, either their coursework or a teacher or um, ha and, and somewhere I heard you talk about and in the book as well um, growth mindset and how I, I, I connect that also in here because I think sometimes what I see is girls um, when they're feeling so negative they immediately kind of come to the conclusion that they, they're not 
built for this, or they're not good at it, or um, the teacher doesn't like who they are, and it's a very fixed kind of mindset. Do you have any suggestions or ideas for how we can um, address even the, the students at school who are harnessing emotion in that way, um, and then also if you could just give us some words for at home. <laughs> I would really... Let me start with you. I have the best new answer on this one. Um, I was... true. I mean, kids, like, they are awesome at school. They're incredibly well-behaved. They put up with annoying classmates and annoying teachers and annoying bell schedules and all of that with amazing amounts of grace. Yeah, and then they get home and they're just like, bleh, you know, about the whole thing. And um, I was recently at a school, and one of the things I like to do is I will say to the students, I'm going to meet with your parents tonight. What do you want me to tell them? You know, and it's great what the, what the kids come up with. And I was already planning to talk with parents about the complaining, and, you know, this is normative, and just to let your kid do it. Yeah. And I hadn't mentioned this to the students I was talking to, so I was really surprised when a girl said, here's what I want you to tell my parents tonight. When I tell them about my day and everything that went wrong, the only thing I want them to say is, oh my god, that sucks. <laughs> that's it. Like, I just all I want to hear from them. And I thought that was so brilliant because I realized that's what we all want when yeah. we're complaining at the end of the day, you know, and here we are coming in with solutions and suggestions and, you know, and they don't want that. Right. So that, that for me was the best piece of advice I've ever heard on the end of the school day. Oh my god, that sucks, right? And, and I think there's a version of that that then also transfers to the school side, right? When kids are coming in and they're complaining, usually they just need validation, mm -hmm. right? I mean, and I think we, we often jump past that point into, you know, solutions or suggestions. And, and then the solutions and suggestions are not very well received because they're like, you didn't even hear me or I don't feel like you heard me. Um, so I think we all need a language around when kids are complaining about our colleagues, right, because that's very awkward, mm -hmm. um, when kids are complaining about their parents, because we don't want any kid going home and saying, you know, school psychologist said that you're all wrong. I mean, like, we can't do that, right? And so, you know, well, some of the language I will use is I can, I'll say things like, look, I get it that you are super upset, and I'm sorry, right? Like, that's often sufficient. Mm -hmm. um, or say, look, you know, from what you are telling me, I can see why this is so frustrating. Right, so I'll say that to kids when they talk about their parents. You know, based on what you're telling me, I can see how someone in your shoes would feel frustrated. So it's based on what the kid's telling me. You know, I'm not saying, oh, my God, your dad sucks, right? I mean, I'm sort of being neutral. Um, but then I think, you know, the giving up, you know, especially with girls. Like, forget it. I'm not doing math. Like, take me out of math, you know. Um, and I think, you know, that's where validation first, right? I hear you. That's Trigonometry is unbelievably difficult. You know, even our smartest students will struggle with that class sometimes. And then I think to say, you know, look, you're a really bright kid, and your experience up till now is that school comes pretty easily to you. So you've already gotten all this way without having to do stuff that's unfamiliar, whereas many of your classmates have been grappling with unfamiliar work for years. So you need to now take a page out of their book, which is to become a little more patient when it doesn't come as quickly as it used to, in some ways, you're lucky you've gotten this far without having to learn how to put up with work you don't understand at first blush. In other ways, you're not lucky because here you are in the eighth grade or whatever, and this is the first time you're having to develop skills that your classmates have actually had to develop years ago because they haven't had the ease that you have up till now. Something along those lines can sometimes work. 
That's great. I like that so much. Yeah. I, I, I also wanted to just mention in your book when you um, talk about the parent that tries to make every moment a teachable moment, I, I went like this. <laughs> I said, oh my gosh, I think that's me. And uh, that was really helpful for me to think of it that way because we're, we're often looking for the teachable moment at home. Um, so I'm going to not do that anymore. <laughs> Pick and choose. Pick and choose. Yeah. I had, I had another person in a talk recently. I thought this was so smart. They bought themselves a little room to do it where they said, okay, look, I'm going to lose my mom license if I don't say this. Yeah. Right? And it was sort of this, like, you know, humor me for a minute. And then she said what she had to say, and then it was over. But she didn't even try to make it some thoughtful conversation. I loved that. I loved yeah. that. Yeah, that's really nice, too. When you say... Um, you talk about sometimes it's just having your child or your student think about the question not that you need them to have a conversation about it or uh, discuss it in any way but just kind of planting the question in their minds I like that as well I, I think that works in both settings at home and, and at school I, I really like yeah the the whole being a little bit Carl Rogers you know with reflecting back and saying okay I, I recognize this is how you feel and this is why you feel it and just kind of leaving at that I remember um, at one point I was called over to another school because they had a, a little bit of a crisis situation and I was asked to with a couple other psychologists to deal with uh, maybe counseling any students that might be you know dealing with that situation and um, I was so nervous going into it what am I going to say where are my resources what, what's the research on this type the thing I remember talking with Anna and um, she kind of calmed me down a little bit it was like I think at this point they just need someone to hear them and to just be comforting to them mm -hmm. and I was kind of like you know you're right and that just helped me feel a lot better too that you know, I can do that I can be that comforting person that's just gonna hear them and sometimes that's all they need so it's a, actually I would say most of the time that's what they need. And it's funny, the longer I've practiced, I mean, I got my PhD 19 years ago. I mean, I say so much more now than I ever did before. I'm really sorry to hear that. That sounds awful, and I'm just sorry you're having to deal with that. That alone, most kids are like, thank you. Like, and, and then they can figure out from there what they need. But it's amazing how um, for an adult to just acknowledge that more has just gotten dumped on this kid than is fair or that they've been put in a terrible position, I'll say, wow, you're being put in a really bad position, and I'm sorry. Like, that's a crummy position for you to be in. We can try to figure out what you can do from this spot, but I'm sorry that you're in this position at all. And, and it's amazing how often I say that now and how often it changes the direction we were going to go. Mm -hmm. uh, Rebecca, I think you had some comments, maybe? Oh, we, we have had some comments. Um, one of our viewers really likes the teammate to the teenager concept, uh, and I do too. I think that's it's because it, it also goes along with the strand of, um, you know, of, of wanting to be, you know, explore that outside world and wanting to be um, more the adult that they soon will be, planning for the future. Mm -hmm. um, 
Uh, and uh, we also had a comment that um, one of our school psych colleagues is is watching more as a, with interest as a parent because um, it is so. This is a challenging time for parenting, and it, um, the the transition and the change from you know when they were little till till now is is tough. You know, it's hard to to just be okay with change. Change is hard <laughs> for us grown-ups too. <laughs> Um, so our, the next uh, um, strand that we wanted to talk about was um, we did with was planning for the future, and I'm wondering if you can um, discuss helping kids understand the distance between the choices that they make today and the consequences. You do talk about um, you know in your book about how, how kids. Um, are not looking at long-term consequences the way we do. Is there a, is there a way to address that with them so that they can still, so that we feel like that they are still making choices based on you know possible outcomes, or is that just something that they're not? Are, are they? Are we only going to be able to talk about short-term consequences or immediate consequences? Um, you know, I think that the the word that hangs over all of this is maturity, right? And you've got some sixth graders who can, you know, plan something out five weeks in advance and manage it beautifully. And you've got some sixth graders who can't remember what they need to take to their next class. You know, I mean, it's you just see this very wide range in terms of maturation on the ability to connect what I'm doing right now and what's happening, you know, in a week or in a period or, you know. And, and I think, um, so one thing an adult needs to know is where is the kid in terms of their ability to connect the choice I'm making right now and the outcome I'm going to get down the line. Um, to go back to that idea of being a teammate with a teenager, mm -hmm. a good overarching concept that I use clinically and everywhere I go is that I think all teenagers have two sides, right? They have a mature side that wants to be grown up, that wants to be put together, that wants to make good choices. And they have an immature side that is immature, makes bad choices, you know, is, is does dangerous and dumb things. And, and what we want to do as adults is we're siding with the mature side. Right. And we're talking to the mature side about the management of the less mature side. And I think that what we do when we do that is we actually foster growth in the mature side. So the kid who is, um, you know, not writing down the homework that's on the board and then not going to come in with it tomorrow, right? So on the low end maturationally, I think it doesn't do as much good to say, write down the homework, do it now, I'm going to stand here and watch, and then, or I'm going to check, you know, all of those things, but instead say, look, you and I both know, right, so you're talking to the mature side, that when you don't write down the homework, you don't come in with it the next day, what do you want to do here, right, and, and pushing on that mature side to step up a little bit, and then I think you can expand that, you have to meet them where they are, so if they're, if they're having trouble writing down the homework, that's the issue. You know, and then, you know, you've got kids who are doing a bad job on projects that they, you know, do over three weeks. And that, you know, becomes a longer runway for, you know, making the right choice. But I think, again, to come in as the teammate and the part that's like, buddy, you and I know every time you forget to write down the homework, you also forget to bring it in. This is your moment. Like, go for it. You know, and, and it's, it's a cheering on the better part of the teenager or the older part of the teenager. Even if you see almost no evidence of it, I think that's sometimes the hardest part, is you have to sometimes imagine that much more mature part of the teenager and speak to it, 
And my experience is it usually shows up eventually, if not pretty fast, if you talk to it. Okay. <laughs> like that. Yeah. So like noticing what they do right and trying to be at work with them. More yes. Focus. I'll say to girls in my practice, you know, when they tell me about their weekend, I'll say, okay, what is a smart girl like you doing at a party like that? You know, that's a very different conversation than, wait, what? where were you and how much did you drink and who was in charge? I mean, you know, it's, I'm worried, but me worrying about her does not keep her safe on the weekends. Yeah. You know, me talking to the smart part of her about what choices she made last weekend has some hope for the coming weekend. Right. That totally um, is a great transition into entering the romantic world. So um, you said there's three jobs of parenting, alerting your daughter to her inner compass, supporting her and asking her. Uh, asking for what she wants and making sure she knows how to express what she doesn't want. Us in the school field, especially as, as a counselor, they come to us and like they're worried they're pregnant or you know like maybe these conversations haven't occurred at home and it's sort of like such a difficult thing to talk about and really a struggle for me. So I was just wondering if you could kind of advise us on talking about this romantic stuff with students. Sure. Um so I've become kind of militant about this since writing the book because I think one of the findings that really, you know, in the research that it was, I knew, it, I've, I've kind of known this, but I'd never seen it written out like this, is that when we talk, especially with girls, about their sexual lives, we talk about risk. We don't talk about what they want. You know, we only talk about don't get pregnant, don't get STD, don't get yourself in a bad position. Nobody ever says, okay, well, what do you want to have happen here? And... And so I now, whenever I have a chance to talk with girls, but this would apply, you know, it's usually girls that I'm talking with, this would apply to boys equally. It's just, okay, the first thing you need to know is what do you want to have happen? Like, that's the most important thing. And I will tell you, when you say this to girls, they look at you like they've never had an adult articulate this. And they first they look at you like you're some sort of, like, pervert, like, you know, suggesting that they might have a romantic... <laughs> or sexual drive, you know. But you just have to, like, keep a straight face and just say, like, okay, well, what do you guys want? Like, this is supposed to be fun for you. You're doing this because you want to enjoy yourself. So first got to know what you want. Then the next thing is, what does your partner want? Like, you need to know that, too. Then you need to have an agreement that whoever wants less wins, right? No negotiation, no pressure, no come on, come on. Then if what you want involves risk, you need to work together to minimize it. So if you want to have intercourse and your partner wants to have intercourse and you guys are in agreement about that and you don't want to get pregnant, then you need to take steps. So if you know, you've got girls in your office who are worried that they're pregnant, right, you know, obviously you have to take care of that concern, but then say, look, what do you want to have happen going forward? Do you want to be having intercourse? Okay, if you want to be having intercourse, are you having intercourse with somebody else who wants that? Okay, what are you guys doing to make sure you don't have to face these consequences? But everything we know from the research is that when kids focus on desire and wish and want, they actually take better care of their sexual health. They take care of them, take the pill. They, they actually manage themselves better. Yeah. Do you think that what do you want question applies also to the pressure that girls feel for sex, sexting and uh, taking provocative images of themselves or even that kind of... Um, the Instagram pressure of having this perfect, beautiful life on Instagram. Do you think by having girls think about what they're trying to achieve with those things, it could be helpful as well? 
could just say, look, I mean, so the sexting thing is so hard because I, I really think a lot of times that comes down to boys really harassing girls to get those images. And, and so I think, you know, it's easy to come down on the girl who's done it, right, because it's a naughty thing and she shouldn't have done it. But I think that it's really helpful to say, like, what happened? How did that come about? And what were you hoping would come of this? Or what did you want? And sometimes they wanted the boy to stop asking. I mean, it's, sometimes it's something like that. But I would, I would get it. Like, what were you getting out of this? What do you get out of sending this picture? Right. And, and ask it as neutrally as possible. Because I think if we come in and the girl already feels in trouble, we're not going to get a straight answer. Like, it really has to be, you know, like, you're a smart girl. This isn't like you. What were you thinking was going to come of this? What did you want? Um, and I think then definitely, you know, the careful posing, all of that, I would just say, like, walk me through this. Like, what, what, how does this work for you? What does this mean? What are you achieving here? But I think um, we're not going to change. There's no magic word that we're going to say that's going to get girls thinking, I should do more trigonometry and less selfies. I mean, like that, you know, there's, we don't have that kind of power. But I think for us to take a vested curiosity and interest and just want to, want them to explain it to us better, it I think that that pushes along the development of the growing side. Yes. You know, and I think that when we come in like, oh my god, you guys in your phones, you know, they just tune us out right away. Absolutely. I think it's such a danger too to, to shame our girls. Um, it's just not helpful and it's it's not it's not gonna. Um, it's not gonna make us less worried either. So, I, I find when we're talking about um, kids that have sent uh, sexts or um, or you know social media bullying or any of that, the 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 victims of it often end up feeling really ashamed of their of their part in it, their choices, or and and that's so awful. It's such a, a terrible outcome. Yeah. Well, and it puts distance between us and teenagers when we're using shame. And everything good that happens for teenagers involves being connected to adults. Right? I mean, when they've got a connection, things go better. Yeah. Great point. And so our last, your last strand is caring for herself. Um, and I, lo I love, love the language here. Um, I love the phrase, I, I've got to count on you to take care of yourself. You know, I can't, I, I'm, you're old enough and I can't be with you all the time but I'm counting on you. I love that and I also wanted to um, talk a little bit about um, drinking and drugs and those temptations because in my area what I consistently hear from teenagers is that everybody does it. You know, everybody in high school drinks sometimes or um, does other things and it, that's a really hard uh, situation to address because then what is the suggestion that you be the only one that doesn't or that I don't believe you that everyone does it how, how do you approach those kinds of conversations so this is like just a beautiful coming together of like a lot of our themes right which is you talk to the mature side of the teenager you do not side against the teenager you side with them on behalf of their safety right I also think there's no profit in getting into the, well, not everybody does it. Are you sure everybody does it? I mean, like, there's no, that conversation goes nowhere. And so say, look, you know, the reason I worry about the drinking, I mean, here's what I say to girls in, at the school where I consult. I'm like, you guys, I love you, and I don't want anything bad to happen to you on the weekend. So here's why I want you to not drink. 
because everything bad that happens to teenagers on the weekends almost invariably involves compromised judgment from drinking. And you know, and we taught I one of the things I walk through in the book is I say, look, think about a, an equation with many variables. You know, that you go to a party, your friends ditch you, there's a bunch of boys there you don't know. You know, either you're sober or you've had something to drink. If you're sober, you can keep yourself safe and go home. If you've had something to drink, you could have a very different outcome. So, you know, I just try to be very um, matter-of-fact. I'm on your team. I don't want anything bad to happen to you. And sometimes, I mean, I've had teenagers push back. You know, like, oh, look, we drink a lot. We know what we're doing. We've got it under control. And what I have said is, I, I'm very honest. I say, look, I don't think your drinking is nearly as safe as you think it is. And when things go wrong with drinking, a whole lot of variables come together really fast in a way no one saw coming. So it's you never are really under control if alcohol is involved. Like that actually doesn't happen that way. And my experience is if you come in, again, like utterly out of caring, they're, they're not so resistant to that idea. Um, and I will say to them, I actually don't care about the law. I really do not care. You know, the, the chances of you getting caught are actually minimal. I am entirely here and worried about your safety. That, for me, I feel like you get some traction. Yeah. That makes sense. It's a scary one. The, the really scary. caring for herself is that's our, that's our goal, and that's our where we all would like to end up with our students and our children. And... Once we get over that hump, we'll be all in a good place. <laughs> you know, the other way to sort of underline that is to say, look, I don't have the power to keep you safe on the weekends. And I actually use that word with teenagers a lot, power. And honey, if I did, I would. Right? Like I would follow you to that party and make sure you're safe. You have to be the one who exercises that power. And, and I think that sometimes gets traction. <coughs> Great. Um, thank you so much for um, for coming on tonight and talking with us. I know this is really helpful, especially to um, as school psychologists, we're often asked to identify to parents, you know, what's normal, what's abnormal, you know, where do we draw the line? At what point are you needing, you know, services and things like that? Um, and so I think your book really kind of helps to inform and flush out, you know, what we should be expecting, and not necessarily getting, um, you know too wrapped up in some of this stuff that might be just a, a typical thing going on. Normal stuff. Yeah, no, I was so glad when I had that idea to end every chapter with the when to worry section. That freed me up a lot in the writing. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, we're going to wrap up. I'm not sure when our next uh, podcast date is because I'm just not that organized to have thought ahead and looked ahead. <laughs> But we'll be posting on Facebook and Twitter and Google Plus and all our usual um, hangout uh, locations. And feel free, everyone, to you know leave us comments, um, you know, and, and keep the discussion going uh, online. So thank yeah. you again. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. All right. Good night. Bye. Bye.